It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is the Graceful Atheist Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Graceful Atheist Podcast. My name is David, and I am trying to be the Graceful Atheist. The podcast grows by word of mouth. Please consider telling a friend about the podcast. Post on social media. Make sure people know about the podcast. Our ongoing Tuesday evening Deconversion Anonymous hangout will take place this Tuesday. The guests have shuffled around a little bit, but generally speaking, we have the guest from this week's podcast on that hangout. So please join us on the Facebook group Deconversion Anonymous and become a part of the community. Special thanks to Mike T for editing today's podcast. On to today's show. My guest today is Elizabeth. Elizabeth grew up in a Methodist slash Baptist environment where she saw the women's group have a lot of power, but no position. Later, when she and her husband were trying to have children and having difficulties, the dark side of the quiverful ideology was evident, where even good friends of theirs who had children would talk about the blessings of the Lord right in front of them. They went on to have IVF and twins, so there's a a bright side to this story. Elizabeth was pulled into an administrative assistant position at the church that actually made her a counselor for the pastor. After a tragic event where she was ignored, where her feelings and pastoral needs were ignored, she realized she had to get out. Today, Elizabeth is a social worker where she uses her heart for people to connect with people and help them. In the conversation, Elizabeth has a fantastic analogy, a little story that explains what her experience was like. We talk about it in the conversation and I want to unpack it in the final thoughts part of the podcast. So please hang on for that. Here is Elizabeth to tell her story. Elizabeth, welcome to the Graceful Atheist Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Elizabeth, you're uh, another person that Marla brought to us. Marla was a guest a few weeks ago, and she has been a wealth of information about people who have interesting stories. So I've read a little bit about your story, and I'm really excited to, to hear you tell it. So let's begin where we normally begin and, and hear what faith tradition did you grow up in? Um, I grew up in 
technically a United Methodist Church. Uh, it was a, a very odd one. We tended to call at, at some point someone we would refer to ourselves as a Methodist Baptist church because we were quite a bit more uh, conservative than the Methodist church in general. Um, we were also very charismatic. So it wasn't quite your typical yeah, that's, <laughs> Methodist that's, experience. That's a unicorn right there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Actually, our, yeah. our women's group at one point um, broke off from the United Methodist Women. So they called themselves, and I love this title, the United Methodist Women in Christ. Okay. <laughs> which tells you a whole lot about why they broke off yeah. and what they thought that the difference there was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was a little bit different. Um, oddly enough, my parents weren't into the charismatic thing. Like they okay. did not participate. They were totally happy for us to be there and sort of be in, in the space, but they had just really no, they were, they're sort of, reserved people mm -hmm. and they'd sort of stand there and sing the songs and watch the show, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of grew up with a funny thing of, well, my parents do this, but they also take us to this church that does this. And what am I comfortable with one way or the other, you know? So that was, that was always a little bit of a, a learning thing of trying to figure out where I fit into that mold. And then internally, was this something that you took on for yourself or was it just following your parents and the church? Oh, I was all in. I yeah. was all in. I actually was baptized three times under various circumstances. Sure. Um, as you do. So I, yeah, I was baptized as a baby, you know, as you do in that tradition. And then as I got older, I think I was 13 and they had started doing baptisms at the end of confirmation courses. Um, and my sister had just finished her confirmation course. And so I said, I want to go get baptized with her because now I'm old enough to decide for myself. Um, so I did that. And then again, as an adult, when my husband and I joined a Baptist church, which is a whole other thing, um, I had to be, had to be dunked. So you know, <laughs> yes, yeah, full didn't count before that. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so, but I had also, when I was seven, I, begged my parents and I to let me join the church. I wanted to be a full member of the church. And they said, kids don't join the church. That's not how it works. Right. And so they took me to the pastor to explain to me why kids don't join the church. And the pastor was like, well, if she really wants to, then let's do it. Okay. Um, so yeah, I did all that even before our confirmation class. For, for whatever reason, we ended up going through confirmation three or four times. I think there were some kids at my age that just weren't getting it. So they just kind of kept doing it over and over. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was all in, I was into the youth group. I was into, you know, we were there every Sunday, a couple times a Sunday, every Wednesday started going to school there in middle school. So I was literally there every single day. Um, even Saturdays, there was always something going on, you know, and then, then in your, your teenage years, uh, did you remain like a part of the youth group? And Somewhat. I started out very just like into it, very excited. Um, we, we had some real upheaval when I first came into the youth group with a pastor, who a youth pastor who broke off to f form his own church and took a bunch of the youth group with him. And ah. it was kind of a mess. And the strangest thing was he left right before we were supposed to go to camp. And we'd already paid for camp. Oh, wow. So we just went to his camp. <laughs> yeah. And all of our friends were there that we weren't allowed to talk to because they were at the other church. Oh, wow. People we had grown up with from birth. 
Um, and then it turns out, and I, I, I don't know at least that year how much the parents understood that this was what was happening, but he had gone just fully, fully, fully Pentecostal, charismatic. I mean, by the end of the weekend, he was telling us he was going to bring a dead body next time for us to resurrect. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was, it was extremely, that was probably the first time that I was kind of like, whoa, this is, this is very much not my scene. This is not what I'm here for. Um, there were parents doing exorcisms on their kids. Again, my friends from birth. Yeah. There were uh, one of the really things, one of the things that really stands out to me was seeing one of my friends, you know, eighth grader, very tiny and petite being cornered by this huge high schooler yelling at her to speak in tongues. He was not going to let her move until she spoke in tongues. Um, yeah. And it was, it was just a lot. And it was clear from all the adults that we had to stay in the room during worship, these hours long worship services, you know, there wasn't another option of where to go. And I think that was, and and the absolute strangest thing is we went back the next year. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) But okay. having all these moms, and I think my mom, my mom was even there one year, and having all these people who had grown up as like my other parents stand there and not intervene, not keep us safe, it was really a betrayal of trust, which I didn't necessarily put together in those words until I was older. Sure. But I, I trusted them. They were all my bonus moms, you know? And for them to stand there and watch all of these things going on was just so uncomfortable. You know, I've talked before about, you know, summer camps tend to be very high mountaintop experiences. And Mm -hmm. the church, especially charismatic, tends to interpret that as revival or the, you know, the uh, God moving in some way or another. But really, when you look back on it with hindsight, there's a tremendous amount of emotional manipulation. Exactly. uh, Exactly. uh, And including what you're describing with the high schooler, you know, very strong peer pressure. Yes. And then if the adults, they're making it worse rather than better. That's, that's, uh, that's a pretty painful uh, experience. Yeah. And I think some of the adults, obviously, you know, the ones doing exorcisms on their kids and that kind of thing were fully bought into it. Others were just kind of standing at the back watching, which, you know, I'm, I'm a little kid, middle schooler, sort of sitting in a seat near the back, trying to be as still as I could, you know, to not get, not gain attention. I just didn't want anybody to notice I wasn't participating. Right. You know, and I, that was kind of a start of this kind of shift of, I am not in the place that everyone else here is, and I don't know what to do with that. This is a really common theme, Elizabeth, when you have an experience early on, and it's not the thing that you know stops you from having faith, but it's one of those things where it's like, ah, I can't really deal with that. I'm going to put this over here <laughs> to the yeah. side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then those start to pile up. You start to realize, wow, I got like seven or eight of these things over here. And yeah, exactly. And the funny thing is, because I had watched my parents for my whole life not participating in this, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't. I didn't have a problem not participating. I was fine with just not doing it. But I was afraid somebody else, you know, like that guy cornering my friend. I was afraid that other people would have a problem with that. 
And I mean, there's some pressure there, but I at least had that foundation of it's okay. I can just sit here. Um, I was uncomfortable, but it wasn't till later that I was like, those adults really should have stepped in and done something. Um, Even if they were into the charismatic stuff, once it was getting into the really culty, bringing a dead body in kind of stuff. I mean, his, his stated purpose was to buy an airplane, (laughs) a personal airplane so that he could do missions work. Red flag. Red flag. Yeah. 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 So it was, that was kind of a whole thing as I got older. um, That was right at the height. I mean, I kissed dating goodbye came out when I was a sophomore in high school. Okay. All right. So the whole purity culture thing, um, my youth group and then the new youth pastor who came in was extremely into that. Um, he, he sort of had this thing where if he approved of a couple that were both from our youth group, then they could date, but only under his terms. And by no means could you ever date outside of the youth group. Mm. And I started dating a boy at school and so it was It was very much frowned upon that I was dating this guy that wasn't part of the youth group. So I was like, well, what if I bring him to youth group? No, that wasn't that wasn't it, because clearly he was just coming for me. Um, and really, at that point, it wasn't necessarily that I was like, oh, I'm going to pick this boy over the church. It was more of me seeing like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> There's like... I, I, I am not one of the approved to have a boyfriend within the, the youth group. And I'm not just going to sit around when I have somebody I like and break up with him so that I can go to youth group. It wasn't even necessarily choosing him. It was just, why would I make this choice? It was just choosing not that. Right. So I kind of started to move away from doing that. I was really busy with extracurriculars and stuff. Once I went to high school, I was going to public school then. And um, so I'd really just kind of backed away towards the end of high school, but I was still very like into it. I would have said that I was extremely religious at that point. I, you know, sure. I was, yeah. And I went to, <clears throat> in fact, I went to a Baptist college. Um, I was very into it there. I was going to a liberal Baptist church that was not part of the Southern Baptist convention. So once again, I'm in this weird yeah. in between place of, yeah. of like, not quite Baptist, not quite something else. <laughs> okay. uh, I seem to have been stuck in that limbo for a while. But you know, we had a we had a woman pastor. It was very progressive. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, which actually, the the Methodist church I grew up in still hasn't had a woman senior pastor. So it really was you know a big deal. On that topic, we've just had uh, a couple of episodes where we've had some ladies who were very strong leaders all throughout their lives and just constantly being shut down and put in a box and pigeonholed Yes, when they were clearly leaders that, you know, should have just shined. And it amazes me that the church tries to do its work with one hand tied behind its back because it has this entire group of people who want to lead and participate in a hundred percent way and and they're held back. So, Yeah. I listened to both those. And the funny thing is our church wasn't quite that far. Like, Pretty much all of the staff, other than the senior pastor and the youth pastor and the worship leader, the worship leader had to be male, but everybody else was women. And we, all of us were allowed, I say us, because at some point I was working there. That's a whole okay. other story. But um, we were all really allowed to to do our jobs, essentially. Okay. We weren't okay. we weren't pull, held back from the leadership there. It was pretty well acknowledged that the United Methodist Women in Christ were 
running the church. Right. Um, <laughs> right. They, they knew their place and yeah. their place was running the church. Yeah. yeah. There's a um, difference so, between position and power. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes. yes. <laughs> So yeah, at, at some point I, um, you know, I ended up getting married. I, that was a, a, a weird story, but I ended up marrying uh, my husband who I grew up with all through elementary, middle, high school. We went to the same Baptist college. He moved back home while I was still going there and we just sort of kept up. And I mean, all of a sudden it was like, oh yeah. <laughs> Hi, I know you, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we got married right, at, right after I graduated college um, still married now, almost 18 years later. So, um, yeah, so we've really been through this whole journey together. Like I say, I, I got rebaptized again, um, so that we, I could join a Baptist church cause he was a good Baptist boy who grew up in the church. Yeah. Um, but I think we lasted about three months at that church and then yeah, probably a little longer, but we were both like, we are not okay with the gender dynamic here. It was strange. We were involved in this, you know, Sunday school class of all people our age. It was great, except that we were the only ones with, without kids. And so that okay. was kind of, a, a, there was a lot going on in terms of the kid thing. All of our friends had kids. We were waiting a little bit, but it just, something wasn't sitting right. Mm -hmm. um, so we left there and we kind of just, we were like, you know what? We have always been in this almost exact same church. Both of us have always grown up. So we're like, why don't we try some other things? Just see what's out there. And that, you know, for our families, just trying another denomination was a betrayal. Interesting. Okay. Like, it was huge. One week we went to a Unitarian church and we hid it from our parents. We pretend we, <laughs> when they asked where we went that Sunday, we told them someplace else because the Unitarian church was so far outside of yeah, anything yeah. that we'd be allowed to do. Yeah. I, I went to a very conservative Christian college, uh, Assemblies of God. And the, the Unitarian church up in San Francisco was like the, the object of, of <laughs> yes. the, the epitome of, Decadence. Sin and <laughs> yes, and, yeah. and falling away from Christ. It just cracks me out. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So yeah, it was it was interesting. You know, at that point, I think that was during the time that I mean I I went to a Quaker meeting. Um mm -hmm. we would sometimes we'd go down to like the real Methodist church for, you know, our fix of like good traditional. And we we're like, okay, we've got some good traditional songs and we had the sunrise Easter service and it was but it was a lot more progressive and stuff. So we we're like, okay, maybe we can fit in here. Um, but it's still at that point, we we're like, okay, we're not quite there yet. We, it was far away from where we lived. That was another thing. But that was also the time when we were finding out that all of this waiting um, and, you know, careful waiting to have kids was uh -huh. sort of pointless because I was infertile oh. profoundly. Okay. Um, and so that was just something that rocked our world, you know, mm, at the time yeah. that we had started, we were like, okay, we're ready to get into this. And then two years later, we finally knew what was going on and it was like really a lot of stuff going on. So, you know, that sort of was a shaker to, to us. Some of our, we had some friends who had been really close friends. They had gotten very into a, a very conservative, um, quiverful church on, I don't know how much you've talked about that movement, yes. but 
the the idea that you have more and more children to fill your quiver full of arrows for God. Um, and so they had gotten really into, oh, the children are a blessing from God who's telling us how wonderful we're living and that we're doing things right. And of course, they knew where we were. Yeah, and yeah. they're still saying these things, which obviously the flip side of that is you're doing something really wrong. Yeah. And they weren't the only ones that we heard stuff like that from. I mean, people can be really, really cruel, mm. even when they're just saying what what they've been taught or, you know, when they're not thinking about the flip side of what they're saying. Right. Um, you know, I, I obviously think that children are the best thing in the world. They, of course, they're a blessing, but I'm never going to say it in a way that diminishes somebody who doesn't have children. Right. You know, your, your life is what it is. Especially closer friends who know the, you know, I'm sure that must've been very yes. emotional and difficult for you and your husband and, and yeah. then to just kind of flaunt it in front of your face is, is exactly. cruel. Yeah. They said some other really cool things, but it was just, it was something, yeah, it was a really, really hard time. And with our very close friends, just betraying us. Like, I mean, it was really, I, I don't know. I keep coming back to that word betrayal, but it really feels mm. like a, a violation of trust when somebody that you've trusted with this information even uses it in that way. I think that was kind of the time, especially that he started, he kind of just decided, I'm not going to keep trying different churches. I'm kind of done with this. Um, we talked quite a bit and he was like, you know, I just don't think, I don't think I'm there. Um, I don't think I really believe in God. I don't think a good God would do this to us. Um, you know, as we kind of kept going, the, the indications, I ended up having terrible, terrible endometriosis. Um, mm. so that it was like, the more we learned, the more we learned how hard this would be. Right. Um, and it just, it just kept piling up and we're still hearing from these people that we'd grown up with, you know, essentially you're doing something wrong. This is a punishment. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. That's, that was heartbreaking. Um, so after several years of that, um, we did finally, we did IVF once didn't work out. Um, we find, and of course this takes a long time cause you're saving up money. My husband actually, we made a list of companies whose insurance covers IVF so that he could go find a job at one of those companies. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause at the time I, I think I was just, you know, I wasn't in a field, I was in advertising. I wasn't in a field that was, was lending itself to that. So we we're like, well, if either of us finds a job at one of these companies, that's what we'll do. And that's how we'll get our second round. So it was a lot of time between those things. Um, but yeah, our second round fortunately took, um, I will never forget the moment that our doctor said, <laughs> was confirming, you know, confirming that, that I was pregnant and said, all right, I'm going to come back to the measurement for baby A after I do baby B. And we both went, B? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. she was just so casual about it. And, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah, it was probably the best moment of my life. Truly. <laughs> I I mean, yeah. there have been a lot of best moments, but um, Congratulations. that was just yeah. incredible. Yeah. And we, I mean, we had just moved into a house. That was a big leap of faith because it's a house built for a family. Um, and so it was kind of funny because I, even at the time, I felt like my term when I was thinking about it as leap of faith wasn't faith in God. Mm. It was mm -hmm. just faith that this would work out. 
And that was still when I would have said I was pretty well into things. You know, I was still going to churches by myself on the weekends and stuff. Can I ask, when your husband first mentioned, you know, that he was pretty much done, and it sounds like he was honest about, like, where he was with faith as well. Yeah. How was your response to that? Like, was that scary for you? Was that, did you get angry? Were you just fully accepting? You know, I think just because I... I know him and he knows me better than like anybody else in the world. We have really good communication and it wasn't a big surprise. You know, we, we knew (laughs) that some, some stuff was happening. We had talked through everything and it, so it just wasn't surprising to me at that point. I think my, my biggest worry was what our families would think. Yeah. Or keeping it from our families because I just didn't want that to be a thing. Um, that's that's why I'm anonymous today. I still don't really, that's something that we just, it's not part of our life with them. I understood completely. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing. Both of our parents are fantastic parents. There's no point in which I can come in and say, I had some terrible thing with my parents in the past and we don't get along. No, they're fantastic. We have great parents. And I think that's, that's not to jump ahead, but that's one of the, the hard things is not wanting to grieve them. Yeah not wanting them to hold something that we don't grieve over as a grief to them. Um, but yeah, I don't think it was, I don't think it was a big shock. Um, and it wasn't, it was just like, okay, I'm going to go to church by myself now. Um, but it, that was also probably a step because I also didn't think, Oh no, now he's going to hell. Right. I don't remember okay. ever okay. thinking that. Yeah. And that was, that was actually kind of my turning point in some ways because not believing in hell I was like, wow, that's, I, I realized at that point that I, like, I don't believe in a hell that he would be in and I wouldn't. Right. And if he would be there, I'd be there too. Like, I'd rather do that. So yeah, that was a real turning point. And I don't think that it necessarily fully changed things for me. Um but yeah, I, you know, we we did finally get pregnant. We had our kids. Um, my pregnancy was, again, I don't know, you know, my body is a strange thing. It was <laughs> incredibly traumatic. I went into labor at 26 weeks. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. I had some complications that made it very dangerous for me to give birth. So I was in the hospital for seven weeks, in labor for seven weeks. Um, oh, they. Wow. Yeah. Medications holding it off as much as they could, uh, constant monitoring. And I cried out to God daily during that time and heard nothing. There was nothing. And I was like, I I was told my whole life in that crisis, you cry out and there's nothing. There's no answer. Yeah. And I was tired of the answer that no answer is an answer. Mm-hmm. I was tired of, you know, all of that. And the church really let me down at that point. My my Sunday school class, you know, one person came to visit me. Um, everybody who came to visit me during that time was my mom's friends. Uh, mm-hmm. She was working at the church at that time. And so it was like, I realized after I was like, well, all my mom's friends came over. <laughs> all my mom's coworkers came over. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was really just, it was the hardest time in my life. Those seven weeks, not knowing if we would be okay, um, we very nearly weren't several times. Mm. Um, 
and it, at several points they kept telling my, my body was shutting down fully. Um, things just kept cascading, kept happening. And the doctors would tell me as long as the babies are okay, we're going to keep you pregnant and keep them cooking because your body, we can deal with your body later, essentially. Okay. That sounds scary. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> and I kept hearing like, they would be like, well, okay, your kidneys are failing right now, but once they're born, it's going to be okay. And we'll fix that. Um, you know, your pancreas is shut down, but once they're born, that's going to go away. Um, wow. <laughs> just all these things like over and over. Um, at one point I even was starting to go into preeclampsia, which is really, really dangerous. And they were like, you're in the hospital. We can do, we can deal with it in the moment if anything happens, but you need to stay pregnant. Wow. And of course I'm, yeah. And of course I'm like, of course I, my priority is my babies. Mm -hmm. But at the same time I was becoming completely disconnected from my body. That is completely understandable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my body was betraying me and becoming this thing that everybody was treating as a separate entity. So eventually the kids, um, my son, we went in for a sonogram and my son's heart was doing something weird. And they're like, all right, let's go. Um, did a C-section. They were right. I did feel pretty much great right after. Okay. Um, so okay. they weren't wrong about that. But um, yeah, the kids were in the hospital for another five weeks. Um, and, but it did, you know, that was again, one of the greatest moments is having them, bringing oh, them wow. home. Um, but it, I was very disconnected from my body. I was a fully different person. My mind and my body were different people at that point. Mm, okay. um, and again, you know, you call out to God, help me with this. And there's no answer. At one point, I even called my best friend. I was like, I can't pray anymore. I need you to do it. And fortunately, she's an amazing friend. She's still one of my best friends. And she was like, I'm on. I've got it. I'm, I've got you. Yeah. I'm on it. That's a good, yeah, that's a good friend. And even, yeah. <laughs> it's a good friend. And she's yeah. still that kind of friend. And, you know, she's she's one of the true ones that is never going to walk away. Can I ask uh, if we circle back for just a second? Yeah. I think it's a really deep moment that you're describing the amount, how conflicted and frightened that you must have been where you're literally asking yourself, you know, do I survive this or do my baby survive this? Which is a Sophie's choice that no one should ever have to deal with. Exactly. And I, it sounds like that was a bit of the cause. And then the, the doctors around you are kind of treating you like a baby making factory <laughs> as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as instead of a human being, uh, your support system's not there. Yeah. And for various reasons, my parents weren't there at the time either. Mm. They were in town, but they weren't present for me. Um, there were a lot of reasons for that, but it, that was another thing that I was just like, I need, I need my mom. Yeah. And she wasn't able to, she was there, but not there. She was close enough to be there, but it was a whole thing that she just had to finish up some, I think she was trying to finish up this big project so that she could be there when the kids came. But then that meant that I was feeling like, again, they were more important, which they were, they were, but I needed to be important too. What I want to acknowledge is the grief there. So yes. all of this intensity and at the, and at the same time you're calling out to God who is the, you know, last resort as it were, uh, the thing that you, you know, th that you think is totally reliable 
and silent. Yeah. So I just want yeah. to acknowledge the the grief that that must induce in a person. I appreciate and, that. That was yeah. that was incredibly hard. And you know, it's funny because the other side of that too is that once the kids were born and once we were home and healthy, everybody kept telling me what a miracle it was and how much God had come through for us. And I was like, no, these the doctors. Mm. I watched the doctors and the nurses save our lives more than once, probably more than two or three times. Mm. Yeah, I'm not going to discount their training and their experience and their hard work and the amazing things they did for us. Thank science. Don't thank God. He wasn't there. And that probably was kind of my moment that I don't think I was ready to accept yet. Right. But I think that was really it. You have a moment of self-honesty internally. And even right. if you can't it really express that out loud yet. Right. Yeah. Right. Something something changes. Well, and that that point too changed a lot of my view on abortion. I had been, I mean, I had been to pro-life protests and done the marches and all that. And I was like, you know what, the whole process of IVF and we had to take um, classes about conception and, you know, what actually happens with the cells. And I realized at that point, nobody, nobody should have to go through what I did if they're not absolutely committed to it. Right. And I was absolutely committed to it and I still didn't want to go through it. <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you, yeah. And exactly. You had to have had the autonomy to make that decision, those literal life and death decisions. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that really changed a lot there. So, yeah, I mean, my, my kids are amazing. They're the best people I know. I have, I, I made, you know, we made the right decisions there, but I also yeah. acknowledge that other people should have the right to make other decisions in that kind of case, or, you know, in whatever case, the stuff about everything about how conception works. I'm like, it's a clump of cells. It's fine. Which when we had to decide what to do with the rest of our embryos, we actually had some that time. We definitely weren't going to go through pregnancy again. And we donated them to science, which I was like, I, we can't tell anyone this mm. because they would be so angry at us for not, not giving them to someone. Right. They, they would consider this killing our babies. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, like we could probably spend the rest of the time talking about, uh, this is such a deep right. topic and, you know, as, as a man, I feel like I have very little to say here. So <laughs> um, I appreciate, I appreciate that perspective. I think there's, uh, you know, we're obviously in the United States, such a moment right now where we're having to reevaluate this. And yes, when it's just the simple platitudes, it's easy to take a black and white view of things. But when you hear a real life story like your own, right, that's the reality uh, of many women's experience on various different levels and, you know, of a spectrum. And that this ultimately has to be a woman's choice. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So yeah, that was a, that's a hard place to be. Yes. But yeah. It, it worked out for us. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So again, I want to also express the joy of your children. And I, yeah. I you know, I'm a parent. I, I know what that experience is like as well. There's something for me too, you know, beyond Christianity was a recognition of how much I loved them, that there was, you know, something deep <laughs> yes. beyond, you know, my stated beliefs, you know, that, 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 yeah. that connection with them 
was also part of, of things for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of, some of kind of what came up after they were born was things like, I don't want them learning in Sunday school that they are sinners. Right. I don't want them because, because I don't believe that. I, I look at these perfect babies. My kids are shockingly well-behaved, great kids anyway, but I'm like, I don't want any of these kids learning that they're fundamentally evil. Um, I don't want them learning about Abraham and Isaac, um, which again was a turning point for me. How could God ever ask him to do that? Mm. Um, That kind of thing, you know, Samuel and Hannah, God asking someone to give up their child was horrific to me. Yeah beyond horrific. Um, so yeah, kind of as they were, I, re- I remember they, they went up for their first communion when they were six weeks old. I took them to church pretty much the minute that we got home. I still was stuck in very much yeah, in that. Okay. Also this church was where I grew up. This was my family. Right. I had been there since I was 11 months old. At that point I, I had done my, my running around to different churches and I kind of decided I just wanted to be with my family when I was going through all the fertility stuff, um, just for comfort. Um, so I was back at that church that I grew up in. These were my family. These were the people that had, had loved me, even though a lot of them hadn't showed up at the hospital or checked in with me, but still, you know, I was very connected there. And so, yeah, I took, I took the kids up to church right after they got home and it was communion Sunday. So we all went up to the altar and, you know, at that time it was a very special experience even to just have something like that. Probably yeah. just get them. This is my time to say, Hey, everybody, here's my kids. Yeah. Um, you know, these are people who changed my diapers too. And community is important, right? Community yeah. is important. And to be able to yeah. share one other personal story, I remember yeah. the first time my best friends expressed how much they loved my children. <laughs> yes, that was like, yes. oh my goodness, you know, like yes. the, when the bond with my best friend was deeper, you know, like so you you want to come and share your family with the community that you're a part of, and yes. that's a normal human thing to do, right? So right. yeah, you don't have to you don't have to defend that at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, these these are people who had changed my diapers, and now were now they were going to change my kids. Actually, yeah. even the doctor that delivered them was the doctor that delivered me, and he went to that church. So, oh wow, okay, right. yeah, yeah. So we were like fully kind of in that, um, and it was really probably the next eighteen months or so that I was kind of on this journey of I I need to leave. Mm, okay. I need to leave this church. Um, things were just kind of building in different ways. There were dramas building. There was all this kind of stuff going on. And I was getting more and more uncomfortable with having the kids get to a point where they understood what was happening and Sunday, like what they were being taught mm-hmm. and then what they would be taught. Um, so yeah, as they get to that age where they're starting to understand things and bring home the little worksheets that have, you know, Isaac on an altar and you right. know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Yeah. You're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, here's Noah's Ark. He killed all the people. Um, yeah. yeah Sam- just... Samson killed a bunch of Philistines with a jawbone. Be good boys and girls. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> There's so yeah. much horror in it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, about the time they were about a year and a half old, I kind of said, you know what? I'm, I need to go. Um, but 
for whatever reason, at that same time, the church, it they had like a separate little preschool um, that was like not, it was part of the church, but it wasn't like only church people. Okay. Um, and they had an opening for the preschool director. So I was like, or work something there. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to at least interview. It would be a way for me to get a little bit of work, but be with the kids at the time. I could get a discount on preschool, you know, that kind of thing. Um, or like they had a younger kids thing too. Okay. Yeah. Um, like a nursery, I think is what they called it. And so I was like, you know, I'll interview with it for this. And so I went in to interview with the senior pastor and he called me the next day and he said, I don't want you for the nursery position. I want you for my assistant. Okay. And I was like, I, that's, that's not what I was here for. Um, yeah. I was just very taken aback. And he said, I, I would like you for some more, you know, more hours than the 10 or so that you had signed up for. But um, I've, I've got positions in the nursery already, you know, reserved for your kids. You still get the discount. You'd be here every day with them. We'd do flexible hours so that you could, you know, take them home. And I was just like, I, that's not, you know, I already knew I had one foot out the door mentally, you know, and I said, no, 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 that's not, I don't want to work that many hours. You know, I, I knew how it goes when you work in a church, you end up there every weekend evening, you know, every weekend, every evening you're there for meetings. I know how that works. Um, so I said, no, he called me again the next day and he said, I really need you. And I said, no, I, I just can't do this. And a week later, I get a call and he says, I'm still holding those nursery spots for you. I think God has called you to this role. Mm. And what do you say? What do you say when somebody tells you that God has called you? Yeah, that's kind of a conversation ender, isn't it? (laughs) Right? Right? So I did. Um, And I, I, I will say the thing I'm proud of in that is that I said, I will not be here after hours. Yeah. I'm not doing meetings. I'm not doing committees. I won't do it. And through the whole four years that I worked there, I think I went up after work once. Yeah. Okay. So I I held to that pretty strongly. And it was one where, you know, at that point, my boss was like, I know you don't come up here, but we absolutely need you for this one thing. I'm like, okay, as long as it's one thing. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I was just like, I know how this goes. My mom worked for the church for years. We've been here our whole lives. I know what you're going to try and get out of me and I'm not going to yeah. do that. So <laughs> I at least held to that, but yeah, good um, for you. it was, but yeah, that was a hard one. And it was great. It was great to have the kids downstairs. You know, I could kind of peek in on the playground when they were out there and that kind of stuff. Um, at one point, something traumatic happened with my son and I was able to, I actually discovered him before the teacher did. I mean, she was right there, but I just happened to see mm, it right okay. then. And, um, you know, so it was really good to be there. And I, I was so glad I was there for that day that we still aren't sure quite what happened, but it was something that really, oh, okay. really got to him. He's fine. It was, we had a summer of counseling. He was three, but he loved the counselor. So by the end <laughs> okay. of it, he, we were like, we still don't know what happened, but he's fine now. Um, yeah, but it was, so it was good to be there. It was good yeah. to have access to them. They were getting preschool education, still getting some of those stories that I wasn't thrilled with, but it was a good, I mean, it was a good preschool education. They knew their letters and colors and they were having fun playing with their friends. And um, so I was like, okay, this is worth it. You know, I get this great discount. When you have twins, you always want that 50% discount, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm only paying for one. Yeah. Um, 
so that part of it was good. Uh, the church at the time was going through some really strange and awful struggles with a school that had been connected with the church since I was born. Uh, very, very long and complicated story short. The school was trying to take the church building. Okay. Just, just take it. Um, there was a lawyer that was sort of the head of the school board or whatever, who decided that he could probably get away with that. And so my boss of course was the center of this whole thing as a senior pastor he was he's older and his health was also breaking down which was then exacerbated by all the pressure from the lawsuit and of course there's so much inner church stress because the church and the school are tied together so some people are on the school side some people are on the church side you've got that typical church split stress that comes up from everything in a church you know yeah. um so he was really getting sicker and sicker he would use our staff meetings as free therapy he would hold us in those staff meetings for hours talking hmm. through his feelings and his health stuff and going over and over and over and over the terrible things that the school had done um, to the point that sometimes I'd have to be like, you need to let us go to get some lunch or let's, yeah, let's wow. take this down the street to the diner and let's finish this there. Cause we're yeah. so hungry. Um, so that was honestly pretty, I ended up stepping into a lot of, I mean, t again, typical for a church, I was capable of doing things. So I just kind of kept gathering responsibilities that had nothing mm -hmm. to do with my job. So it was really, really a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. And all along this, I'm getting increasingly like, I don't believe any of this. Mm. None of us are going to hell. You know, gay marriage is great. <laughs> Let yeah. everybody get married. I, you know, and that was actually the the Methodist church was going through their decision process there too. And I was like, I I can't stay in a place because our church was definitely on the side of no. Um, <laughs> definitely. And so I was like, I, I can't stay in a place that thinks like this, that yeah. wouldn't let my friends come in and teach a Sunday school class, you know? Um, so that was not great. Eventually I was finally, my kids went to kindergarten, so they weren't there anymore. And I had, there was a pretty awful experience where one of my very close friends, actually one of the very few people who had visited me in the hospital and had been really there for me. Um, I got a call one day while I was working at the church and somebody said there was an accident on the Boy Scout trip. And somebody died, but we don't know who and don't tell anybody. Oh, wow. And I mean, we, we knew it was this big trip that, you know, they had some of the older Boy Scouts had taken to this remote area. So we knew who was on the trip. Obviously, they're, they're all our, I mean, I knew she was there. I knew one of the other adults was there that I knew. I knew that, um, you know, the kids were our kids. They were our youth. Right, right. Um, so I'm freaking out. I can't tell anybody. They told me not to tell anybody. I'm sitting at my desk, just tears rolling down my face. Somebody says, what's going on? I said, I, I want to tell you, but I can't. And I'm freaking out. I had to go in my, he, my boss wasn't there. I had to go in his office and shut the door just so that I, cause I couldn't handle it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sitting there feeling like, and at some point a boy scout representative shows up and like brings me into the, into his office and kind of says, we know that 
there was a storm and a tree fell on a tent and killed the people inside. Oh, wow. He still didn't know or tell me who it was. And then I went in at one point I was like, I, I had to go in the bathroom, clean myself up. I'm standing in the bathroom and my phone calls and it's my boss. And I'm like, okay, I have to talk to my boss. I pick up the phone and he says, okay, I'm, I'm still, what did he say? I'm still out here looking for Ricky to try and get him on the phone and get him up here, but I need you to do this, this, and this. Ricky was her husband. Mm. That was the first I knew who it was. Okay. So I'm absolutely falling apart. I, I had known she was there, but the way that I was told was we're looking for her husband. Okay. And it was, I was devastated. And then everybody from the office sort of gradually disappeared. And about two hours later, I was like, guys, I'm sitting here alone. I still didn't know if I could talk to anybody about this. Right. And so I kind of went downstairs and discovered everybody had gathered in the prayer room with her husband. Everybody. They had gone to get her best friend. Um, nobody had thought like, oh, she's still up in the office alone. Yeah. Um, or even, hey, they're friends. Yeah. Wow. She's affected by this in a way that's not just she works for the church and she needs to make a funeral bulletin. Nobody thought she needs pastoral care right now. Mm. And so when I found everybody in the prayer room, I went into another room and called my mom. And just mm -hmm. sobbed to my mom on the phone. And of course, my mom was also very close with her. And so we're both just sitting there like yeah, grieving. Mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of a moment where I was like, church staff do not get pastoral care. Once you're on the staff, you're no longer in the congregation. You don't get care from the pastors. You don't get concern from the staff. Yeah. So who are you supposed to turn to? And... That was, that was a big moment of just like understanding where my position in the church was. Even I'd kind of known there's a divide. Like once you, once you're on staff, people just kind of talk to you differently. Even in, even in the Sunday school class you've been in for years, all of a sudden you're like the insider. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. But like, I think not even, it was within weeks of all that happening that I got a call one day, everybody else was out of the office for something. Maybe it was a Friday and everybody had already left or something. And I got a call on the main line and it was a boy, a teenager. I think he said he was 15 or 16. And he said, I don't know what to do. I don't go to your church. I just looked, I just Googled churches near me, but I'm going to kill myself. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm sitting here alone. I'm essentially the secretary. I had insisted on not having the secretary title, but I was the secretary. Yeah. Um, I had told them I was an admin assistant. That was going to go on my business cards. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm the church secretary sitting here alone. And I, I mean, I talked to that kid for hours. I actually, while I was sitting there, I set up a Google voice account so that I could give him my number without giving him my number yeah. so that we could keep, I could keep checking in on him. Um, his girlfriend had broken up with him or something and he just went and found, he was like, maybe somebody at a church will talk to me. Mm. And as far as I know, he kind of got through that and we talked, you know, we even talked through some people he could talk to and that kind of thing. But when I got off the phone, I was like, I am not in any way trained and prepared for this. Yeah. I had no preparation for this. You were definitely providing the pastoral care in that case. Yeah, exactly. And 
I decided shortly after that to go back to school for a master's degree in social work. Oh, wow. Great. Because I thought I need to, I, I love helping people in that way, but I need the training. I need to know how to do it. Yeah. Um, and that was really, that was really my route out of the church was to be able to work on that degree. Once I got into a point where I needed to have internships and stuff, we finally said, you know what, this is the time that I need to stop working at the church, concentrate on school, get through that and get a job in my chosen field. Yeah. Um, so really that's, that's pretty much where we're at now. I'm very happy as a social worker. Um, it's definitely my calling and, you know, as far as that goes in terms of what I should be doing. Yeah. Um, I've, I've kind of said before, you know, it, it feels like I spent my whole life pushing a really heavy dresser down a hallway, a really heavy piece of furniture that's really tall. Mm-hmm. And everybody around me was saying, you can do it because your best friend is on the other side holding it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your best friend is on the other side helping you pick it up. Or, you know, I'm I'm carrying this thing and they say, your best friend's on the other side and they've got the other end of it. You're good. You're fine. And I would try and, you know, say, hey, are you over there? And my and everybody else would say, oh, it's fine. They're not talking, but they're right there. You can you can tell because you're, you know, you can hold it. You wouldn't be able to hold it if they weren't there. Mm. And then finally, one day I said, you know what, I'm going to have to set this down and see for myself. And when I did, there wasn't anybody there. And I discovered that I'd been stronger all along because I'd been the one carrying it. You were strong enough. I did read that you had written that story and I had read it. And what I love about it, it is it's the inverse of the footprints. Yes, <laughs> I love that story, Elizabeth. It's great. <laughs> you discovered that you had the strength all along. You were doing it on your own. That's that's. I love that story. When there was one set of footprints, they were mine. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, man. And One other thing you said in in writing that I thought was interesting that uh, you said that you thought you would try life without God for a while and that God could find you if he really wanted to. Do you want to expand on that? You know, and that's kind of, I I feel like that's sort of where I am and where I probably always will be is like, if, if finally some voice out of the sky said, Hey, I'm God and I'm here and let's talk. I'd be like, okay, yeah, let's talk. Um, But you know, I was raised with so many people telling me, again, this is, I was raised with people telling me things. Um, and you know, everybody would always say, God is always seeking you. That was Mm. the big thing. He Mm. loves you so much. He is seeking you out. He is hunting you down. He will find the lost sheep. And so finally I kind of said, I've been seeking him for so long and not finding him. I'm going to let him seek me for a while. Yeah. I don't, believe that's going to happen. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not necessarily. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, it's fine if it does. I just don't think that's going to happen. Right. <laughs> Relatively early on into my deconversion, Ryan Bell talked about the great book world song, say something I'm giving up on you. Uh, of course, I don't know that song. Uh, the song is about a romantic relationship, but if you listen to it, it's it's a great deconstruction song in that it's about the that silence of 
I just need you to say something, anything, yes. you know, like, and, yes. or I've got to go. Those are my yeah. options. And, yeah. and uh, it just captures that for me. A lot of your story has been about the deafening silence when you needed God to, to be there. Yeah. And, and at some point you have to say, I, I need to move on. And then another kind of the fault ending question I like to ask people is, you know, what, what do you find meaningful today? Where are you finding community? Uh, you know, are there some sources of information that inspire you or give you purpose and meaning? You know, that's, that's actually kind of the coolest part. Um, there's a part of me, I, I always had a sort of a love hate relationship with the community aspect of church because while it was my family that I grew up in, I also just never quite fit in there mm. probably because I felt this sort of distance and doubt, but there's also just a lot of weird social stuff that I was not into. Um, my, my mom and my sister were extremely popular and it always felt like I was kind of trying to get in on what they were doing. Um, <laughs> but when I left the church, my kids started school shortly thereafter. And I just, there, they had this amazing class like this amazing program that they started and this class they were in and the moms just we all have since ever since then I mean the kids are older now but we've been just the best of friends they have been every kind of friend I have ever needed mm -hmm. okay. um, and the funny thing is all of us are different faiths different nationalities um, two of the, two of my friends are nationalities that are traditionally at war with each other, okay. which is kind of an interesting <laughs> dynamic, yeah, um, yeah, but they yeah. love each other. They, you know, um, but we come together for reasons other than a belief that we've been told we should have. We come right. together because we love each other's kids and we love each other's kids. Like they're such fantastic kids. And I actually, started a scout troop for them last year. Um, that has, it's a whole other story, but it kind of grew where it started as girl scouts. And then all the boys in the group wanted to do it too. So we've kind of got this whole big group that just all does things together. And That's they're so all, awesome. Yeah. All just sort of this crew of siblings. Oddly enough, we all have twins. Oh, um, okay. So that's been interesting. Yeah. So that has been this amazing community. I reconnected several years ago um, with these other friends that we'd been friends with since we got married, but we just kind of lost touch when the kids were born. And um, one of them, it's kind of funny because this is something that people don't necessarily bring up unless they feel really safe bringing it up. But finally at dinner one night, um, I said something like, you occasionally allude to things. And I was like, what is your faith practice? Uh -huh. I'm like, I'm not asking this out of like, you know, proselytizing. I'm asking because you alert, allude to interesting things sometimes and I want to know. And he said, well, I grew up Wiccan and now I'm not Wiccan, but I practice sort of, and he kind of explained this whole thing to me. And so when COVID started, and this was shortly before COVID started and just our conversations about that had kind of progressed. And he texted me and he said, do you want to, I'm doing this weird, crazy thing where we're going to try and do this ritual on the phone. Do you want to join the call? Uh -huh. And I was like, sure, why not? That's, I mean, that's been a big thing. Just saying, sure, why not to things yeah, that I wasn't yeah. allowed to do. The freedom you know? to do so. Yeah. The freedom to do that. And it turned out that kind of what his, 
what his philosophy is and this other friend that he had come up with this is that um, it's not about necessarily divine power Mm -hmm. um, what they're, what they're doing, what we're doing, I guess, Um, unless you want it to be, and it can be, but we have kind of this thing where we've built a ritual around just presence and spending time as a community. And we have part of it. And this was kind of what I loved where you call like call forth a deity quote, quote unquote, but it's not, you're not necessarily, I mean, some people probably do believe in these things that they're calling it, but the whole idea is think of something inside yourself that you want to be focusing on what you want to be concentrating on and sort of what, what is, what personifies that? So, and our joke is you can call in a shiny doorknob if you want to, if it's, if it's representative of what you want to see in yourself. Right. right. Um, but you know, you're just kind of saying from within myself, I see this God or goddess. I see this, I've, I've called in Santa Claus, you know, just different things that are inspiring to you in the moment that you want to kind of think about for a while. Um, and it does really fill my need for ritual and ceremony. Yeah. When I was looking for churches, I always was really, I was really drawn to like the high smells and bells. You know, I love the ceremony, the tradition. Um, so I love having there are little things that we do, you know, candles and different things. And I love that we kind of have a written thing that we go through, but there's, there's no expectation or requirement of belief in anything except your, yourself. And again, there's also not a requirement that you don't, you can, you can believe it a hundred percent. Right. Right. Or not. Yeah. You know, it's fine. I do think that's the most exciting thing about deconstruction, deconversion. It's like at the end of it all, you know, you get to just go explore. There aren't any yes. taboos. You can find out what works for you. There's so much freedom. Yeah. Two things that pop out of that and is one, I have a book recommendation for you. If you haven't read it is uh, mm-hmm. Sasha Sagan's small creatures such as we, and the mm-hmm. entire point of that book is about, Hey, we're human beings. We need ritual. We need uh, community. We need to be together to mark important occasions in our lives, but yeah. very much secular, very much from a secular yeah. point of view. So I really recommend that uh, for you. And then two is uh, my favorite definition of religion from the perspective of everything is actually secular (laughs) in reality is uh, Anthony Penn. And he talks about religion is just a collective search for meaning and purpose. And, uh, you know, so it's just people getting together and trying to figure it out, you know? (laughs) So I always, I always encourage that how, how, whatever form that takes. And so it sounds amazing for you. Well, a big thing we do too, is we acknowledge that it's play when we do quote spells, you know, the other day, uh, my daughter has just been getting into, she's had this string of bad luck with things. She had a concussion and a sprained ankle and the flu. And um, so I was like, oh, I just, I want to wrap her in bubble wrap. And one of the <laughs> one of the other people was like, well, go get a picture of her and wrap it in bubble wrap. Which is just <laughs> yeah, a funny, right, like, right. we're doing a thing that represents a thing that we want to happen. It's not even law of attraction or something where I think it's going to happen because I thought it was going to happen. But we're just like, yeah. I'm acknowledging that this is a thing that I would really like to happen. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I think that's, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Well, Elizabeth, I thank you for uh, telling your story. It was heartbreaking at moments, uh, but it sounds like, uh, you know, lots of, of joy on the other side at this point. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. It is. And thank you so much for having me and letting me share. I really appreciate it. Yeah. My pleasure. 
Final thoughts on the episode. I really grieve for Elizabeth as she describes being in the hospital bed, having put everything into having children, experiencing a number of complications and feeling utterly alone. Not just alone because her mom wasn't able to be around, but alone because God was silent. It's wonderful to hear that her twins were born and they're healthy and her and her husband have a wonderful family now. But at the time, in that moment, I can't imagine the amount of stress and pain and grief that she must have experienced. As well as prior to that, having the quiverful ideology and having it thrown in their faces that they didn't have children. Just the lack of empathy, the lack of awareness of someone else's feelings is just astonishing. I think Elizabeth was being very kind to recognize that they were in a bubble and unable to hear themselves when they said those things, but still it, that would have been incredibly devastating. I also hurt for Elizabeth when she talks about being pulled into ministry and really trying hard to set boundaries and at the same time finding that her needs, her pastoral needs were not being met as well. When a best friend of hers dies and the pastoral staff basically ignore her and don't ever consider what it would feel like in her position. Again, the, the three points in Elizabeth's story is an utter lack of empathy, being so sucked into the bubble, so wrapped up in ideology and dogma that the human empathy doesn't come through. It also shows that Elizabeth is a minister herself, that she took that call with the young man who was considering suicide, and that it spurred her on to go into social work, to recognize that she didn't have the skill set to manage that. And so she went out and did it. And now she is a social worker. I think that is amazing. I'm going to unpack her analogy of carrying a great weight like a piece of furniture in the Secular Grace Thought of the Week area. So hang on for that. But I want to thank Elizabeth for being on the podcast, for being incredibly vulnerable, for sharing with us some deep human experiences with honesty and integrity and compassion. Thank you, Elizabeth, for sharing your story with us. The Secular Grace Thought of the Week has to be about divine hiddenness and Elizabeth's analogy. I'm going to read you the version she sent me before our conversation. My analogy is that I've been carrying a tall, heavy piece of furniture my whole life. And all that time, everyone around me has been telling me that my best friend is on the other end helping me. When I've asked to see my friend, they've said, I just need to trust that he's there. Of course he is, because I wouldn't be able to carry the load if it wasn't. When I asked to talk to him, I didn't hear anything, but convinced myself that of course he was there. When finally I decided to set down the load and see for myself, I discovered that I'd actually been carrying it on my own the whole time, and that I've always been stronger than I gave myself credit for. What I absolutely adore about this analogy is two things. One, that Elizabeth in fact was strong enough. Elizabeth bared incredible tragedy, incredible difficulties, incredible life and death decisions literally in her body 
and was strong enough to come out the other side, strong enough to become a social worker and to use those skills and those life experiences to help other people. So she was, in fact, strong enough from the beginning. And then two, that this is truly the inverse of the footprints in the sand. I loved when she was just riffing off of what I was saying. And she said, and when I found there was one pair of footprints, it was me. It was Elizabeth all along. I absolutely love that. The conceit of Christianity is what Elizabeth's analogy describes, that God is with us, that God is our father, that Jesus is present with us, that the Holy Spirit is literally with us and and to try to change us from the inside and to change things for the better for us on the outside. And yet, one of the most common themes throughout all of the stories that people tell on this podcast is that when people truly need God, when it really is life and death, when their mental health is on the line, when their physical health is on the line, when their family or children's lives are on the line, God is absent. And I think this is an area that Christians do not take seriously enough. As I have said many, many times, it is not that I think Christians take God too seriously. It is that Christians don't take God seriously enough. And what I mean by that is, if you are a Christian and you believe that divine hiddenness is just a fact about God, that he is subtle and in the quiet voice and that he cannot be tested, and you also believe in the God of the Old and New Testaments, who is an interventionist God, who is truly present, this is where Christians don't take things seriously enough. The juxtaposition of the God of the Bible and the God of modern Christianity is stark and painful. I mentioned this in my previous conversation with Shannon, a review of Ted Chang's Hell is the Absence of God, in which he posits a generic theistic God who actually intervenes in the world during the scientific era. And the human beings on earth study these events. They take statistical analysis. They weigh and measure the positive benefits versus the negative costs. And it is such a stark contrast to the world that we actually live in that it is a damning account of divine hiddenness. If you are a believer in the middle of deconstruction and you find that the silence of God is deafening, and you are crying out like the song, say something, I'm giving up on you, and yet you get no response. The problem is not you. The problem is not your faith. The problem is not how much you pray or don't pray. It is not how much you read the Bible or don't read the Bible. The problem is that you have been told a lie. When there were one set of footprints, it is you. As hard as it is to accept that, the actual miracle, the actual wonderful thing, the actual magic is our connection to each other, to other human beings. You don't have to walk alone. You can reach out and other people can walk alongside you, can carry that burden with you. Instead of calling out to a hidden 
potentially, in my opinion, non-existent God, reach out to the people around you, the people who love you, your friends, your colleagues, your family. They love you and they feel that, quote unquote, God-shaped hole in your heart. That missing piece is our connection to each other, not a non-existent God. We have some amazing conversations coming up. Again, continuing the theme of the Duns, people in their 50s and 60s who have deconverted late in life and are experiencing the freedom on the other side. That theme continues next week with a gentleman named Dave. The week after that, Arlene is guest hosting with her friends, and I can't tell you how excited I am about that episode. That will be coming up in two weeks. Until then, my name is David. And I am trying to be the graceful atheist. Join me and be graceful human beings. Time for the footnotes. The beat is called Waves from Mackay Beats. Links will be in the show notes. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can promote it on your social media. You can subscribe to it in your favorite podcast application. And you can rate and review it on podchaser.com. You can also support the podcast by clicking on the affiliate links for books on gracefulatheist.com. If you have podcast production experience and you would like to participate with the podcast, please get in touch with me. Have you gone through a faith transition and do you need to tell your story? Reach out. If you are a creator or work in the deconstruction, deconversion, or secular humanism spaces and would like to be on the podcast, just ask. If you'd like to financially support the podcast, there's links in the show notes. To find me, you can Google Graceful Atheist. You can Google Deconversion. You can Google Secular Grace. You can send me an email, gracefulatheist at gmail.com. Or you can check out the website, gracefulatheist.com. My name is David, and I am trying to be the Graceful Atheist. Join me and be graceful human beings. This has been the Graceful Atheist Podcast.